Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. Most of my childhood computing centers around Commodore computers starting with the PET, moving into the VIC-20, then the 64, and ultimately the Commodore 128. So most of my computer software and gaming experience is Commodore-centric, with two exceptions. One of my close friends eventually got an Apple computer, then a national chain of computer stores, Computerland, opened a location in my town. My friends and I would ride our bikes all through town, sometimes we'd just walk, but we always went the back way if we had the opportunity. We never tried to stay on the street. If there was an apartment building, we could walk behind. If there was a parking lot with a loading dock, we'd always want to go and check out what was there. Computerland opened in a weird location next to a gas station and not far from this bagel shop we liked going to. And I remember we had gone to get a bagel and we were going to walk home, and my one friend said, hey, let's cut through the gas station, go through the hotel parking lot, and then we'll jump through that fence. Of course, we agreed. Why wouldn't we do that? And while doing that, we noticed there was something new. This office building that had gone up had something on the ground floor that wasn't there the last time we walked by it. It was called Computerland. We walked in, and you could instantly smell the newness, and there were desks set up with computers everywhere. There were two young employees at the front, and they, to their credit, asked if they could help us. And we said, no, we're just going to look around. And they didn't kick us out, so we started poking around. This was the beginning of a wonderful friendship with the people who worked there, who not only didn't find us completely annoying, but sort of made us their unofficial mascots. We were able to on a regular basis, visit, and they would show off whatever new computer thing they had. And if we sat quietly on certain machines that were a little off to the side, we could use the computers. This is where I first got to play King's Quest. And it was a revelation. I had played adventure games on my Commodore where you just read text and would enter directions and travel around. And that, to me, was amazing. But here was a game that had a graphical representation of that adventure. And from that point on, it was very difficult to go back to the only text version. King's Quest would redefine adventure games and, for a large part, influence all video games that would come after it. I am very grateful to the people who worked at Computerland for putting up with my friends and me. For the time it existed, it felt like a magical place to visit. And even now, I think back very fondly on it. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about the game I played most often at Computerland in full color, King's Quest. We'll talk about the people behind the game, the creator and programmers. We'll talk about the company that made it. We'll talk about its sequels, its remakes, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
King's Quest was an adventure game that was developed by the company Sierra Online. It was originally published for the IBM PC Jr. in 1984 and then would eventually roll out on other systems. If you played the game later, you might know that it had a subtitle that was added much later. Originally, it was just called King's Quest, but as the game was distributed and sequels were starting to come about, they added the subtitle Quest for the Crown, but that title does not appear in the game itself. This would be the first official King's Quest game in the outstanding King's Quest series of games, although there was a game before it that is sort of a precursor, 1980's Wizard and the Princess. The company that would become Sierra Online, or Sierra Entertainment, was founded in 1979 as Online Systems. It was founded in Simi Valley, California by Roberta and Ken Williams. Ken was a programmer, and in 1979, he brought home a teletype terminal and was looking around and saw that he could play the text adventure Colossal Cave Adventure. Now, I talk about Colossal Cave Adventure on the Zork podcast that I did. You might want to check that out. At this point, he encouraged his wife, who had no background in programming or video games, to join him in playing the game. And she was instantly hooked. And she started to see the bigger picture of what these games could become and started trying to play other ones. For example, games by Scott Adams, who made some amazing games that were ported to the Commodore. Games like Adventureland and The Count. The thing that Roberta Williams realized is that while these text adventures were a lot of fun, it would be more fun if there was something graphical going on. And together with Ken, they were able to put together their first game, Mystery House, which was inspired by the Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none. This game was released in 1980, and it was a big hit, selling 15,000 copies, which earned them $167,000 in 1980 money. Now, the graphics were black and white and crude for their time, but it was the first adventure game to have graphics, and they knew they were onto something. So they decided to use the company that they had founded, Online Systems, to begin making more of these games making them not only bigger and deeper, but also adding elements like color, which is a giant leap forward. Their next big game would be Wizard and the Princess, which is considered a prelude to the King's Quest series. And they would release several games along these same lines leading up to what would be their big hit, King's Quest. Roberta Williams, the creator of King's Quest, was born in 1953, a video game designer, writer, and legend at this point. Now, Roberta and Ken They're making games, but they're making them all by themselves. Ken doing the programming, Roberta doing the writing and the art. And this is way before people were doing anything like this. Conceptually, just getting images into the computer was not an easy thing. She learned to use this device called the Versa Writer to sketch these out using an electronic eye on plexiglass. But when you know something, you know something. And I think it was because Roberta had become a gamer with Colossal Cave Adventure. According to Roberta, I just couldn't stop. It was compulsive. I started playing it and kept playing. I had a baby at the time who was eight months old. I totally ignored him. I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't want to stop and make dinner. If you're a gamer, you probably know what this is all about. And you could see why this is a person who might be driven to create games. When they started selling Mystery House... 
they would bag them up and take them to stores to sell them. But they also ran ads in magazines and it didn't take long before they were having a hard time keeping up with demand by themselves. They even put their home phone number as the helpline for Mystery House. So if you needed a hint, you would call and Roberta or Ken would pick up the phone and walk you through where you might be stuck. While King's Quest is the game that everyone remembers from both Sierra Online and Roberta Williams, it's not actually considered by Roberta to be her favorite work. That would go to the 1995 game Phantasmagoria which is a much deeper and much more adult game. And if you were playing video games on computers in 1995, you might remember it because they advertised it like crazy. I was one of those people who bought it the month it came out, and it was much different than I expected it to be. And one of the weird things about it is very quickly people got wind of the adult content in it, and it became much more difficult to find a copy of it in certain stores. Although if you went to smaller retailers, they would have it. But some large retailers like CompUSA wouldn't even have it in stock because they were being boycotted by certain organizations. We'll return after these messages. Everyone is cordially invited to a computer demonstration starring PC Jr. from IBM. But what can you do with PC Junior? There are many programs for learning, word processing, filing, budgeting, planning, and more, including many business programs that run on the IBM PC. You can run over a thousand programs with PC Junior. Now with new keyboard at a store near you. And now, back to the show. So let's jump back to King's Quest. In 1982, IBM was planning its launch of their new system, the PC Junior, and they wanted some launch titles to go with it. And so they contacted Sierra Online, and among the things that Sierra would develop for the PC Junior was King's Quest. They wanted this to be a new type of game, more interactive. And because of this, they developed a new game engine, the Adventure Game Interpreter or AGI. This game engine, the thing that powered the game itself and allowed you to do all these fun, cool things that you'd never seen in games before, was developed by programmer Arthur Abraham. In addition to Roberta Williams, there were six full-time programmers working for 18 months to complete King's Quest. And the idea behind it was to make it look like an interactive cartoon. It helped that IBM was kicking in $850,000 in development costs. And because of this, they heavily advertised the game. The IBM PC Jr. would not be a big hit. But luckily for Sierra, they could easily port the game to other computers. The game would slowly roll out for other systems at the same time that they were developing new versions of King's Quest, including many sequels that would follow. In addition to MS-DOS versions, there would be versions of King's Quest released on the Apple IIgs, the Tandy, the Amiga, the Atari ST. Now, one of the biggest oversights, well, not really an oversight, just a limitation of the hardware, was that King's Quest was not ported to the Commodore 64, which is a real shame because more people had Commodore 64s than all of these other computers. And it is said that 
this was because of a limitation of the graphic system of the Commodore 64, which wouldn't let Sierra make the game to the level of detail they needed. In addition to this, the AGI engine was just too intense for the Commodore 64's processor. So all of us at home who had Commodore 64s either needed to find a friend who had a more powerful machine or find a computer land that gave them access to the game. We'll return after these messages. Something is happening out there. Something that's expanding your world. Small computers are happening. Affordable small computers for your home. Computers that don't just entertain, but challenge. That don't just teach, but make your children want to learn. To meet the small computer that meets your needs, meet the people at Computerland. At Computerland, we know small computers. Let us introduce you. And now, back to the show. So if you ever get to play King's Quest on original hardware, hopefully you have access to the manuals. For King's Quest 1, there would be multiple manuals released. The one on the IBM PC Jr. is sort of adorable. It has this very cute art inside that I really like that is a lot less sophisticated and a lot more cartoony. In fact, it has a wonderful kind of mashup of the game art, but with this cartoon style. It doesn't really fit. And it makes me kind of sad. I think that it would have been kind of fun to see this cartoony style art in the game. But I'd like to read to you the intro from that manual. Welcome to King's Quest. This fantasy game features animated characters, lifelike images, and multicolored scenery. Realistic sound effects and an exciting three-dimensional quality combine to create an imaginative type of game entertainment that stimulates your thinking and can provide countless hours of fun. You play the game as Sir Graham, a knight in the Kingdom of Daventry. To save the kingdom, you're sent on a quest to obtain three magical objects. You control Sir Graham's movement as you travel through the land of Daventry, searching for treasures, solving puzzles, avoiding hazards, and battling dangerous characters. You can also save games and then restore these games later so you don't have to start from the beginning every time you play. Unless, of course, you want to. Good luck, Sir Graham. We hope you are prepared for the exciting adventure of King's Quest. Everything in that, for the time, was sort of futuristic. When they say lifelike images and animated characters, even multicolored scenery, that was cutting edge for the time. Not something you were always going to find, especially at the high resolution they were. If you were used to Atari-style graphics, or even better graphics on your computer, this was just scene after scene of them. And you could move the character around and interact with things in the game. This was mind-blowing for the time. Now, if you're wondering about the name Sir Graham, from what I understand, which in this manual is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M-E, but in future ones is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M, like the Graham Cracker, and legend has it that he is named Sir Graham because Roberta Williams has an affection for Graham Crackers. I'm not sure if that's true, but I really want it to be. The non-IBM PC Jr. manual that would get released in 1984 is very classy looking. 
kind of has an old style font on it to look more like something from the past. And the paper even looks kind of more ancient looking, like it's a scroll of some sort. What I like in that manual is that they have a suggestion on creating maps while you're playing the game and even give you an example of a typical map. This is something that if you've never played an adventure game is very helpful because these games don't have mini maps, no hand holding when you're playing the game. You had to have paper at your side and make notes and it really helped to map from screen to screen where you were going and what you were trying to do to get to those different places and what was important on those screens that you needed to go back for again and again. It was a novel concept at the time and one you needed to master to play games like Colossal Caves or Zork and King's Quest was no different. Even with its graphical interface, a map was really handy. Now you heard from the original King's Quest what the story was. As time went on, they would release and re-release King's Quest time and again, and the backstory would expand. Now, in the original game, if you solved these puzzles, you got to become the king, but in future games, that became even more of the focus. Hence, a colon was added to the title, and it became King's Quest, Quest for the Crown, which is strange to have Quest Quest twice, but nobody seemed to mind. One of the things that would happen as they remade the game is that they would upgrade the engine. And this meant better graphics, better music, and deeper story. Not all of these re-releases were very well received. A lot of fans who grew up at this point playing the game and were trying to come back to it didn't like the enhanced graphics or the things that made it slightly more modern. And by 1990, an enhanced version of the game was described by fans as destroying a classic. The takeaway being, even back then, people didn't really like remakes all that much. So how do you play King's Quest? You would move Sir Graham around a 3D environment, meaning while the game was 2D in its view, you could actually move in front of or behind objects, obscuring Graham or the other way around. This wasn't uncommon in other animation, but it was the first time that anybody had done it in an adventure game. And in the original version, to interact with any object, you still had to do the text input. So you had to have your keyboard, which came with a cool overlay, and you could move your character often with a joystick, but you could also use the keys. And say you came up to a key, you might say, take key, and then the key would enter into your inventory. And then you might use the key on a door to unlock it. And to move around, instead of typing north or south to go either way, you actually just move your character around the screen. And there's an obstacle on almost every screen, something you had to either puzzle out or figure out a way to get around or overcome to unlock more things to move on to other areas of the adventure. The release for the PC Junior was in 1983, but the full release of the game was in 1984. And the versions of the game are different, the 83 and 84 version. Not just the manual that I talked about, but there were some different functionality, including keyboard commands, scoring, all sorts of stuff like that. But to most people who are going to play it, it's the same game. In that year, you would see it released on the Apple, the Tandy, MS-DOS, Amiga, and Atari. And it would be three years before they would do a release on the new engine, on the AGI-2 engine. And that was a big release in 1987. That was the first King's Quest with enhanced graphics. One of the more interesting ports of the game was in 1989 for the Sega Master System which used its own engine. In a lot of ways, it's very different than other versions of King's Quest, but still 
King's Quest. One of the big problems with it was that it was a very difficult version of King's Quest, and saving was done via passwords. Because you couldn't save directly to a Sega Master System, you were given a password to write down. And I don't know if any of you played games back then and needed to do this where you would write down a series of characters, letters, and numbers that you would have to enter in the very next time to play the game again. But almost all the time you would be playing and you would write things down and somehow you transpose something or it wasn't clear or you just weren't paying attention and your save didn't work and there was almost nothing you could do about it. You would sit there wondering, eh, maybe this zero is actually an O or maybe this B is actually a D or something like that. It was very frustrating. Plus entering a series of characters that was any length using just a joypad was no joy at all. The Sega Master System version didn't do very well, and maybe it was some of those reasons, but the big reason is probably because King's Quest appeals to people who own computers. There is just a different type of person who plays games on computers versus who wants to play a game on a console, at that point especially. And so it didn't do very well, but it didn't take the shine off of King's Quest. By 1997, the series and its sequels had sold over 7 million copies, making it one of the best-selling computer games of all time. There was an unofficial remake of King's Quest released in 2001 by Tierra Entertainment that updated the graphics, has full speech, and drops the text parser. It's a very interesting take on King's Quest, and it's kind of more interesting when fans try something, even if it doesn't work fully. You always get something interesting. That would join a series of other games, King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne, was released in 1985. King's Quest III, To Air is Human, was released in 1986. King's Quest IV, The Perils of Rosella, was released in 1988. King's Quest V, Absence Makes the Heart Go Yonder, was released in 1990. King's Quest VI, Air Today, Gone Tomorrow, was released in 1992. King's Quest VII, The Princeless Bride, was released in 1994. And in 1998, King's Quest VIII, Mask of Eternity, was released. So many, many King's Quests, all selling many, many units. As you might have noticed from these titles, humor figures quite prominently into the King's Quest series. It is maybe one of the more interesting characteristics of the game, is its blending of fairy tale stories and humor. And it does it very seamlessly. And in its original incarnation, it was laugh out loud hilarious for many of us. It was a great combination of puzzle solving, storytelling, humor in a familiar but brand new environment that we had never seen before. And so many video games owe so much to this game. So if you've never played King's Quest before, why not check it out? It's available on most platforms still. You can find it. You can even find places to play it in browser. With platforms like Steam and Epic Games, gaming on computers is still going strong, but it wouldn't have been as popular and we wouldn't have these new genres of games if it wasn't for people like Roberta Williams who as a gamer saw the potential and pushed it to its limit and opened up doors for other creatives to come in and build upon that base. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter 
I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy at twitter.com slash peachypixel8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. Just look for the Welsh flag. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show over on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, drop by patreon.com slash retroist. There you'll find episode extras and member-only episodes, and of course access to the Retroist Discord. It's a whole lot of fun, so check it out. If you'd like to support the show, can't use Patreon, please go to wherever you download the Retroist podcast and give it a positive review. It helps other people find the show, and plus it's nice to read nice things about yourself. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. King answers Sir Graham Daventry is now a poor country desperately in need of help to overcome its misfortunes recently I've heard tales of three magical objects that would end Daventry's troubles I'm an old man Sir Graham and my death is near I'm depending on you to search through the countryside and find these three objects if you do the throne will be yours This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.